This is a podcast from Partnerships for Wellbeing. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Ways to Wellbeing, coming to you from Partnerships for Wellbeing here in Inverness. My guest this time around has many strings to his bow. He's a writer, a poet, a musician, a biker, a whiskey connoisseur, a man who knows a wee bit about religion, and more lately, a politician. He lives in Shetland, which might give you a clue who I'm talking about, but he also knows this neck of the woods in Inverness very well. Tom Morton, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, when you kindly accepted the invitation to appear in the podcast, I said we could talk about life, death, books, alcohol, motorbikes, push bikes, religion. Where would you like to begin? Well, I think I'd probably like to begin with motorbikes in that I am now an ex-biker. Um, mm. As of maybe three months ago, I handed in my helmet. or uh, You don't actually hand in your helmet. There's not a sort of police um, amnesty or anything like that for ex-bikers, but uh, I sold all my my motorbike stuff and I'd already sold my motorbike. Partly it was an age thing and partly continual nagging from my wife, Susan, who basically felt that uh, I was an unsafe motorcyclist. And I think there's some truth in that for elderly people like me who, you know, occasionally take their motorbike out on a sunny day and basically put themselves and everybody else at risk. So that's what's happened. I'm an ex-biker, but but I have drawn inspiration from you, Jeff, and I have bought a convertible car. Well, I've gone the other way, and I've got rid of my convertible car, <laughs> and I've got an electric bike. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I must admit, the whole idea of a convertible car is something that had escaped me for years and years since I worked in the TV programme Wheel Nuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the last time I ever drove an Audi TT Roadster. I'd forgotten how cold your head gets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can put the heater on, though. I mean, that's true. It's an enormous <laughs> waste of energy, but yes, you can do that. Put your heater on and wear a hat. Yeah. See, I always maintained the argument that uh, although people said it's silly to have a convertible in this climate, actually, it's the ideal climate because if you have one in Spain, it's far too hot and you just fry. <laughs> so uh, that was always my excuse. Now, you say you've given up motorbiking. You said that before, haven't you? You have. I've said up- that on various <laughs> occasions, yes. And uh, the other thing is, talking of electric bikes, I mean, electric motorcycles. Now, there's a thing because you can get grants or loans, interest-free loans from the Scottish government to buy these. Mm. And, you know, a wee electric motorcycle, why am I talking myself into this? It's probably because my wife can't hear me. But, you know, an electric motorbike would be good. I mean, what a symbol that would be of yeah, environmental friendliness. Yeah, but surely a nursery slope back into full, full-blown motorbikes again, probably. Possibly. One of the things that's always irritated me about motorcycles is the the gear that you have to wear. You know, you have to get into leather trousers. I mean, some people maybe find that quite exciting wearing leather trousers, but I always found it a pain. (laughs) And jackets and scarves and all sorts of gubbins like that. At least with a convertible car, you can wear your normal clothes. Okay, Tom, so you've given that up for the moment, we'll say, but... When I went through that list of your uh, the strings to your bow, as it were, it occurred to me that maybe every couple of years, every three years, you embark on some new kind of life adventure. And I think the only constant 
that I can pinpoint for you is living in Shetland, which you made that decision decades ago and you've stuck with it. Yeah, I can remember when you were head of Radio Scotland uh, having lots of meetings with you when I would say, oh yeah, another two years and we'll be moving back to Glasgow or another four mm-hmm. years or give it six months. and we'll be, But for some reason, Shetland has retained its hold and now the kids are all grown up and they've moved away. Um, and to be honest, I would say we've probably got another <laughs> two years or so. <laughs> it's really down to, um, to Susan's job. Uh, Susan, my wife, is a GP. And her practice here in the North Mainland of Shetland is one of only two that are still independently run um, that aren't basically under the authority of the health board. So for her, I think it's getting to the point where she's reaching the age where she feels she ought to retire, but she wants to make sure that there's continuity of service here. And I think, you know, quite rightly, she feels that she owes a great deal to the local community and she doesn't want to let them down. So once a new doctor's in place, who knows? You've no shortage of doctors in your family, though. That's right. It can be a bit embarrassing to count them all. In fact, sometimes I lose count. I think there's six. uh, Of my children, let me see, um, Martha's a doctor, um, Sandy's a doctor, James is a doctor, their wives are doctors. I can't remember. It's loads anyway. Let's talk about books now, because since we last had any kind of chat, you've published quite a few uh, more books. Your most most recent deals with alcohol and religion. Yeah, um, this was uh, something that came from the editor I was working with in my previous book, which was called uh, It Tolls for Thee, and it was about death, really, and my life or my work as a funeral celebrant. So we were thinking of just throwing around ideas and uh, I had thought that some there might be something about alcohol because as you know Jeff I've been interested in alcohol for a fairly long time <laughs> and we both yeah <laughs> um and also my background in um religion was something that maybe I thought we could tie together so it struck me that alcohol has been part of religion and crucial to it religious practice in various ways from the obvious things like communion and communion wine to the fact that a lot of religious communities produce alcohol Mm -hmm. as monasteries, Trappist monks, some nuns, abbeys. Partly uh, it's rooted in the whole notion of Christian settlement as arising out of agricultural development and topsy-turvy Christian settlements producing lots and lots of uh, advancements in the way that agriculture works. Yes, I saw a video clip of you trying the famous Buckfast tonic wine, um, in which you approached it in the way a connoisseur might approach some kind of vintage red wine. Um, You weren't too impressed. Didn't go too well. Yeah, there's a whole chapter in the book about Buckfast. It's a very interesting substance Buckfast tonic wine. You'll know, being from the west of Scotland, (laughs) that tonic wine is part of the culture, working class culture, really, in the west of Scotland. Electric soup. And it's something, I think, because initially it's cheap. It was cheap and strong. And what you have in Buckfast is a really interesting combination of very strong alcohol, 
sugar and caffeine. So it's a, it's a, an interesting concoction, which, as they call it in certain parts of Glasgow, wreck the hoose juice. But it's produced by this monastery uh, down in Devon. 13 monks live there. It's one of the wealthiest religious communities in the country, if not in Europe. And they adamantly refuse to take responsibility for the fact that this stuff causes so much damage, which I find almost mystifying. It's, they, they claim to be able to spend a lot of their money on charitable works and all the rest of it. But, you know, when you go to somewhere like Wisher Coat Bridge and you see the damage that's done and the fact that there's green shards of broken Buckfast bottles in the street on a Saturday night, you really do wonder. Well, you could make the same accusation against the Scotch whisky industry if you wanted to in terms of it's got this kind of aura of um, luxury, the connoisseur, the malt brands, all of that. But it's still alcohol when it, when it comes down to it. It's still alcohol, but I, I think, you know, the point that you're making about connoisseurship and luxury is very different from the marketing of Buckfast. I mean, Buckfast is not marketed as a luxury product. It's not marketed as something for connoisseurs. It is you know, Cumbernauld rocket fuel thing. I mean, there's nothing, but you wouldn't serve Buckfast at your dinner party, would you say? Oh, I've got a very nice vintage of Buckfast. I believe it's the 2003. Oh, goodness. It would be quite interesting to try that and see if anybody noticed. You know? Well, I haven't got them with me just now, but I do have, uh, I sent away for these um, sweeties called Buckfast Boars, which are made in Edinburgh, which are meant to taste of Buckfast. And in actual fact, believe it or not, it's a kind of Edinburgh rock but flavoured with Buckfast. Well, mentioned briefly whiskey, and we've mentioned briefly your previous book, um, It Tolls for Thee. Now, I saw you on Facebook one afternoon, and you were recommending a, a lovely bottle of whiskey from the co-op, I believe, and you were saying what good value it was, what a great taste. And I, ro- I rushed out and I bought some, and sure enough, you were right, it was a lovely whiskey. And next time I heard from you on Facebook, you were coming out of hospital. Well, um, let me think. When I left Radio Scotland, that was um, skin cancer, I think, which provoked mm-hmm. that. Um, and then, fortunately, I've been in remission from that ever since, from Radio Scotland and from skin cancer. But there was also two heart attacks, and mm-hmm. that was a that was really a salutary business. I don't think the alcohol was uh, a huge factor in that. Um, a West of Scotland diet, on the other hand, mm. um, and um, my granny in Bells Hill in Lanarkshire was very fond of serving up pies and heavily sugared, heavily fatted sweets. And my my whole childhood was wrapped up in food, fish suppers, chips, you know, pies, all of that kind of thing. So I don't think there's any question that there was a link, but also a genetic one because I come from a family on one side where all the uh, the males died at age 50 or, or younger from heart failure. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that was what was um, the prime reason for my, um, my hospital stays. And I think the second time I, I, I had two bouts of um, heart problems. And the second time I was there, which was, I think, about three or four years ago um, down in Aberdeen, which was quite exciting because in Shetland, in this kind of situation, it was air ambulance and evacuation mm-hmm. and all that kind of thing. 
um, they put in two stents in quite a brave and difficult um, way of doing it. And that seems to have sorted out the problem. I'm still partial to a bit of cheese and chips, though, unfortunately. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you recovered. That, 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 <laughs> that, that's the main thing. Well, of course, the good thing is that whiskey is one of the things that dilates the arteries and, you know, increases the blood flow, Jeff. So, you know, in moderation, a small whiskey is actually not a bad thing. Can, I, can you just assure me you're not under any kind of payment from the Scotch whiskey industry at this point? Not, no. <laughs> at this point? No, and I'm sure my accountant would agree with that. I've not, I, there was one period when I did Spirit of Adventure, and there was a couple of years when I was writing and broadcasting only about whiskey. And I was claiming whiskey against tax, um, much to my accountant's amusement and approval, it must be said. But that is no longer the case. Now, death. Let's talk about death, because your book, as I say, your previous book, um, it tolls for the, that emerged from your, your uh, shall we call it your previous life adventure uh, as a, a civil ce celebrant, is that right? Humanist celebrant initially, secular celebrant, and then mm -hmm. basically it got to the stage where people were asking me to do religious services as well, and I was going, well, why not? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Do you know, this interesting thing about our, our um, attitude to death these days, and I've got a theory that one of the great things that has happened is those terrible adverts you get in daytime television for funeral plans because there was a time when they weren't allowed on television and now every day there's somebody talking about you know making sure you're prepared for your death and your family aren't going to have big expenses and all that and it really brings home to people hey you know <laughs> you are going to snuff it one day you know so you better get your act together well there is that it was odd i think where it really struck me was during this year's or the last tour de france there were continual adverts for cheapo cheapo um, non-attended funerals. This is when you basically, it's 900 pounds. It's the cheapest possible funeral and there's no service. Basically you just get, and, and you've got somebody standing there going, you know, I don't want to cause my family any trouble. This will be fine. And it's only 900 pounds. What a relief. I'm going to spend the rest of my money on drink and drugs. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think, I think it's important for people to realize that when they die, they have no rights. You know, the dead have no rights. It's, it's the people who are left behind who organize the funeral, um, who organize all the aspects of dealing, all the logistics of death. Yeah. But it's them that have to suffer. It's, it's, it's the uh, bereaved and the mm. grieving who have all that trauma to go through. And I think acknowledging that and making it easy for them, maybe giving them some ideas, telling them what you would like is a really useful thing. And uh, I think we also have to acknowledge that, that, that it, it, it's not enough, really, in my opinion, to just say, oh, you know, I don't want anything. I just want nothing. Just have a drink at the local pub. Because people have to go through a process of grieving and, and the rituals of uh, bereavement and grief are important. And what about you, Tom? Have you made plans? I mean, I know you've picked out your, your plot. That's right. Well, Susan and I went up to the cemetery in Aishness, which is one of our favourite places. It's on the peninsula north of where we live in Shetland. Uh, and we have bought our plot. Um, it's a double plot. 
and it is in a spectacularly beautiful place. I suppose it's comforting for us to know um, that that is where our remains will be. Not that we'll know anything about it at the time. And of course, it may make it very inconvenient for our family indeed. <laughs> if, for example, we have, happen to die while on holiday in Tenerife or something like that. Yeah. But there we go. Yeah. And also there's a chapter in the book about what I would like to happen or have said. In fact, I wrote my own eulogy, which I recommend to everyone. Of course you did. (laughs) In fact, I thought of recording my own eulogy. That would be an interesting one. But I think hearing the dead person's voice, you know, at a funeral would be a bit freaky. Yeah. (laughs) I have had one or two sort of strange experiences conducting funerals. I think one of the most embarrassing was when um, during the pandemic, when it was all graveside services and I was using Bluetooth uh, music from my phone with a Bluetooth speaker to, at the request of the family to play some Hank Williams songs at the, uh, at the graveside. And it was a solemn, you know, Hank Williams songs, which was being played. Well, unfortunately it went straight into Jambalaya and uh, also, when it when the music started, it was coming from the Bluetooth speaker, which was behind a gravestone, and one of the elderly um, relatives nearly jumped out of her skin. It must be said when it sort of well, burst into life. Well, I have to say that the the saddest but best funeral I've been to lately was a, a friend of mine uh, died a few months ago, and she had requested uh, "I'm in the Mood for Dancing" to be played. And it was just wonderful to see the mixed reaction uh, from those who did get up and dance and those who didn't know what to do with themselves. You know, it was, it's a great a tricky practical one. joke you can play on people, isn't it? It's a great. <laughs> You've got one final trick up your sleeve. You know? Well, that's right. John Cooper Clark poems read by John Cooper Clark is another one. You know, the swearing can cause all kinds of issues but yeah uh, anything goes at a funeral though obviously there may be restrictions in certain churches over what you can do absolutely well takes us nicely having talked about death let's talk about life after death um and religion because yeah i'm not i've never been quite sure what your relationship is to organized religion uh, uh tom and i know recently you were back in some of your childhood haunts and that's where you were part of the Brethren, I believe, in, in Ayrshire. Has that, has that tainted you or helped you in your life? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. I would say that, you know, in lots of ways, it was an incredibly valuable upbringing. Um, I don't think I'd be doing what I've done in terms of public performance or broadcasting or writing if I hadn't been encouraged within uh, the Gospel Hall as such to perform because it was very much about proclaiming the gospel and uh, the only way to you know achieve anything within the brethren circles was to become a preacher or a performer of some kind however it's also been damaging in lots of ways i would say emotionally um it's a very restrictive morality but on the other hand i think um that the way I regard religion now is as a series of stories which can be beneficial, it can be damaging, it can be useful. Um, And I think one of the great privileges of adulthood of old age is being able to, with some distance, look at your upbringing and say, well, you know, these are the good things 
and those are the good things I'm going to use now. Um, and those are the bad things, and I'm just not going to have anything to do with that anymore. And I'm not going to let these things affect my life. Okay. Now, this is Ways to Wellbeing, so I should ask you um, about your current lifestyle and how you keep yourself fit and healthy, apart from not going in for the big fry-up breakfast uh, every day. Are you a walker, a jogger, a cyclist? What are you? Well, like you, I have an electric bike. Um, I feel vaguely guilty about an electric bike. You know, there's something about not suffering. Maybe this is a religious background thing coming out, you know, mm -hmm. that you feel you want to suffer up the hill rather than zooming past some hapless, you know, serious cyclist who can't get up the hill. Yes. Um, but on the other hand, it does feel good too. Yeah, cycling. Cycling oh. is uh, a problem in Shetland at certain times of the year, this time of year. You can have lovely days, but very short, lovely days mm -hmm. because we're so far north um, and it can be terribly windy for days, weeks on end. So you wouldn't want to go on your bike then. In the summer, we go kayaking. We're, we live right on the sea. So that's uh, very enjoyable. Walking is a funny one because I enjoy walking in cities and in towns mm -hmm. more mm -hmm. than I enjoy walking in the countryside somehow. Yeah. I love walking in Glasgow. I just well, especially, love it. Especially this time of the year when people leave their windows open and the lights are, are blazing away, you can peer inside. Or is that just me? No, no, I, was, I thought you were going to be able to leave the windows open and you can sneak in and steal stuff. But that, that's what do. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> yes. No, you're absolutely right. There is something. I mean, when we were in Glasgow, we were like hicks from the sticks uh, just last week. And we were saying, oh, look, look, there's a Christmas tree. And couldn't go over the fact that it was so early in the year and there were all these Christmas trees and Christmas lights and stuff. But yeah, there is something wonderful, though it can be a bit odd. Like um, we have a wee flat in Troon now in Ayrshire. Mm -hmm. And uh, so rather than going straight to the city or having a flat in the city, we tend to you know have this decompression in a small seaside town. Then we get the train up to Glasgow and suddenly you're in amongst all these thousands of people and you go in the underground and you think, should I be wearing a mask? Nobody's wearing a mask. Why, why aren't people wearing masks? All this kind of thing. Finally, let's return to books again, Tom, because I'm intrigued to ask you if you've got another book in the pipeline because you've recently become a counsellor, uh, a local counsellor. So are you observing and taking notes? And is that your next book? <laughs> <laughs> a book about being in the council. I think there's an awful lot happening in Shetland at the moment. We have we have a, a very interesting scenario playing out on the island of Unst, the most northerly island, where millions, more than 20 million quid so far, has been invested in a space centre mm. where they're going to be launching rockets and satellites, and it's all defence-orientated. Lockheed Martin, the biggest arms company in the world, are involved. But I mean, the, the, um, the idea of all these scientists and soldiers and military people and spooks arriving in an island like Unst and mm -hmm. setting up a rocket launching scenario, I think there's got to be a book in that. I think that could be it's great. It's got to be a thriller. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I've also, yeah, it's an interesting thing. I, I mean, I've written a couple of thrillers and had them published, but I've never been very happy with them. And I've never felt I've, I've got on top of that as a, as a genre. So I've recently enrolled in, you know, BBC have this thing called Maestro. It's a kind of course. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so I've recently decided to enroll in the Lee Child 
course in how to write thrillers. So I'm hoping that that will help me along. Yeah, James, James Patterson is also on, on doing one of these as well, which I thought was very good. But of course, he now licenses out his name and other people write his books for him. That's right. He's got, he's, but so does Lee Child. I think Lee Child has his brother doing That's his right. Book. It's his brother, yes. Yeah. It's interesting, Tom, where do you fit into the literary scene in Scotland? Because I think you are one of the most talented, gifted uh, writers in Scotland at the moment, and you can write across so many genres as well. But whenever these lists come out or festivals come out, your name doesn't come kind of front of mind there. You know, are you do you keep your distance from that world? <laughs> Nobody ever asks me. <laughs> um, You're too far I, away. <laughs> I suppose there is partly the geographical thing, but also it's it's an odd one. Um, I just found, I think maybe I've been a bit too prolific uh, and a bit too visible and a bit too obviously, you know, high profile and broadcasting. One of the interesting things about uh, being on the radio for so long and uh, was that people kind of put you in that little niche and they don't necessarily like the idea that you could do, you know, two or three other things yeah. as well. So there's that. Um, oh, possibly I've been around too long, Jeff, you know. <laughs> possibly people are sick of me. Well, Tom, I hope you're around a wee bit longer <laughs> and uh, and I hope people do come and find all, all your books because um, uh, I've read about, I don't know how many you've written, but I'm sure I've read about um, six or seven of them and uh, they're, they're all very different in their style content and, and what they're trying to achieve, but they're all brilliant in their own way. Well, Tom, thank you, Jeff. That is, I really appreciate that. That's, yeah. uh, I mean, and it's, it's particularly meaningful coming from you who has played such an important part in my life and my career. So there you are. Yes, I'm just your Buckfast dealer, that's all I am. <laughs> I will send you a bottle of vintage Buckfast. <laughs> Tom Morton, thank you very much. Ways to Wellbeing is produced in Inverness, Scotland by Partnerships for Wellbeing, a registered charity. To find out more about our services, go to p4w.org.uk.